0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to TheAnalysis.News. Please don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button and the share button and all of those buttons. And I'll be back in a second with our guest, Ali Abunima. In 2018, Carolyn Glick wrote a column in the Jerusalem Post titled Mowing the Lawn in Gaza. Glick served as Assistant Foreign Policy Advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from 1997 to 1998. She writes for for Israel Hayom, Breitbart News, The Jerusalem Post, and Marev. She's the Adjunct Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Washington, D.C. based Center for Security Policy and directs the Israeli Security Project at David Horowitz Freedom Center. She was also the deputy managing editor of the Jerusalem Post. She served as a senior columnist and senior contributing editor until 2019. In 2019, she was a candidate on the, for the Israeli Knesset. In, in its Israeli Independence Day supplement in 2003, the newspaper Marev named Gleck, quote, the most prominent woman in Israel. So why do I give her a whole bio here? Well, she's just she's not just some random writer here. She's a serious player in, in this sphere. and Here's what she wrote in 2018 when Palestinian youth were at the Israeli-Gaza border demanding their right to return to their homeland and were being indiscriminately shot by Israeli soldiers. Quote: The main strategic takeaway from Gaza and from Judea and Samarra is that there is no solution, military or otherwise, to the Palestinians' never-ending war against the Jewish state. All Israel can do is secure its control over what it already controls by, among other things, applying its law to Area C, and use military force to limit Palestinians' ability to attack its civilians and its territory. The coming days and weeks may and should see a significant escalation in IDF offensive strikes against Hamas targets in Gaza. But no matter how successful they may or may not be, they shouldn't be seen as anything more than a military version of mowing the lawn. Let me repeat that, the military version of mowing the lawn. And just as grass grows back, so Hamas will rebuild its strength. Israel's challenge is not to uproot the grass, but to maintain its credibility to keep it as short as possible. Who knows, maybe one day the Palestinians will get tired of fighting and there will be peace. End quote. Now, Glick is far from the only one in Israel making this argument. Professor Ephraim Inbar, on July 20th, 2014, four years earlier, wrote an article titled Mowing the Grass in Gaza. Ephraim is director of Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies and is a professor of political studies at Bar Alon University. The metaphor, Equating the killing of Palestinian political leadership and civilians, including children, in periodic military campaigns, comparing that to cutting grass is now common common parlance amongst the Israeli political and military leadership. We will hit them with strikes they've never dreamed of, Netanyahu said as he announced the assassination of senior Hamas commanders earlier on Wednesday. Gaza's health ministry reported 53 Palestinians killed in Gaza since Monday, including 14 children, more than 300 injuries. The recent attacks on Gaza are not just the product of a politically desperate Prime Minister Netanyahu, but are a strategic policy of the Israeli state. Western media continues to hide this obvious fact. Now joining us to discuss the recent events in Palestine and within Israel is Ali Abu Nima. Ali is a resident of Chicago. He contributes regularly to such publications as the Chicago Tribune and Los Angeles Times. He's also served as vice president on the board of directors of the Arab American Action Network and he's a fellow at the Palestine Center and is co-founder of the Electronic Intifada, which I urge you to check out. It has uh, tremendous news on uh, on Palestine. And he joins us today from Amman, Jordan. Thanks very much for joining us, Ellie.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: So, uh, well, first of all, you're from Chicago. There was a big uh, a rally, a protest in Chicago protesting the recent Israeli strikes on Gaza. It was really a remarkable number of people. Uh, maybe you can just t- talk, a, mention that, a little bit of how that took place, and then let's get into the what what triggered the most recent uh, events.
1: Well, I, I wasn't, uh, sadly, I wasn't in Chicago for that, but I did uh, speak to friends there who said that uh, they estimated that there was somewhere from eight eight to 10,000 people, which is pretty impressive for Chicago during a pandemic as well. So that, that was really uh, heartening to see that uh, outpouring of solidarity. And there have been, uh, I haven't been able to uh, attend them, but there have also been major uh, protests in Jordan, including around the Israeli embassy in Amman, uh, making the demand, which is pretty much universal in Jordan, to close the embassy, expel the ambassador, and suspend or cancel the Jordan Israel peace treaty.
0: Mm. Well, be- before we get into that, let's talk about then. So, what triggered this recent, the recent events, and, 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 the, and a whole new attack on Gaza?
1: Well, the the most recent events really uh, stem from Israel's uh, escalating ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem. Uh, as you'll know that under the Trump administration, the US um, recognized Israel's uh, illegal claim to sovereignty in Jerusalem. Donald Trump said we've taken it off the table. Um, Various Arab regimes, particularly the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, made so-called peace deals with Israel. And Saudi Arabia, although it didn't formally uh, do so, is, of course, tacitly approving all of this. So you can also say that Saudi Arabia uh, has, in effect, made peace with Israel. And what that meant is that Israel felt emboldened to uh, push ahead with its ethnic cleansing, its Judaization of Jerusalem, uh, believing that uh, there was no one really to stand against it and that um, the Palestinian cause was dead. And I think the Arab regimes that um, you know, celebrated their marriages to Israel did so over what they thought was the dead body of the Palestinian cause. Uh, But instead what happened is that there has been tremendous popular resistance in Jerusalem and indeed across Israel from Palestinian citizens of Israel, tens of thousands came to Jerusalem to uh, support Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in particular. And this came to a head uh, over the last uh, week or so when uh, Israel carried out a number of armed raids on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You may have seen videos of Israeli soldiers firing tear gas and stun grenades inside the uh, mosque, which is one of the most revered sites for Muslims all over the world. A scene which I think would have generated uh, outrage from the West if it had been in a synagogue or a church instead of in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I think this kind of Entrenched Islamophobia means that, uh, uh, you know, if Muslims are being attacked in the holy places, people are fine with it. A lot of people are fine with it, sadly. And on Monday, the 10th of May, was what Israel calls Jerusalem Day. And this is a a sort of a fake holiday that Israel, a pseudo-religious holiday. It's really a nationalistic holiday that celebrates Israel's 1967 occupation of East Jerusalem. And the way it's celebrated, uh, has been celebrated in recent years, is by thousands of Israeli settlers, ultra-nationalists, carrying Israeli flags, forcing their way through uh, the Damascus Gate in the old city of East Jerusalem, through the narrow alleys of the the Muslim quarter, chanting slogans like, uh, Death to the Arabs, and Muhammad is dead and uh, attacking and insulting Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem, and also making incursions into uh the al aqsa mosque compound and and This is something that's happened year after year we've reported on it at the electronic Intifada we have uh you know horrific videos of this, and you know an analogy that people often make to it, which I think is a fair one is the Orange Marches, which used to take place, or still take place, but used to take place with much more violence in Northern Ireland and in Belfast, where these uh, um, chauvinist, anti-Catholic, loyalist, uh, Protestant um, uh, groups would march through Catholic nationalist areas, uh, you know, uh, just in order to provoke and insult the uh, people there. But it's more than
0: that. Aren't these kinds of things, and and I I know people don't like this analogy, but I don't know that it's that far from what the SS used to do in the early days, to terrorize people to leave. I mean, the the objective is is to get people to to get the hell out, to try to force people out.
1: Yeah, it is to terrorize people to leave. And... Uh, it, it's in the context of people actually being forced out of their homes. That's, that's the thing is, is that people are actually being forced out of their homes. Families literally being kicked out of their houses and settlers, extremist Jewish settlers taking their places. And it's also in the context where many of the groups that organize these, uh, racist parades are affiliated with something called the Temple Movement uh, in Israel, which is an ultra-nationalist movement, a religious messianic movement that has the open backing of senior Israeli government figures and funding from the Israeli government, whose openly stated goal is the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and its replacement with a Jewish Temple. So that's why the, the, the Palestinian fear is not irrational and i would make another analogy here to the 19 uh was it 1990 or 1992 destruction of the babri masjid in ayodhya in india, in india by hindu nationalists which set off uh you know uh, uh violence that killed thousands of people and decades of uh you know deepened political uh, and sectarian strife in India. It's, it's consequences are still going on today. Uh, so that's really the context here that these things do actually happen if they're allowed to happen. It's, it may seem in, inconceivable that the Al-Aqsa Mosque would be destroyed, but these people would do it if they got the chance. And that's why Palestinians feel it's so important to defend the Al-Aqsa Mosque Uh, against the settlers and against the Israeli state. So what happened on this Monday morning is that uh, before dawn, and and remember this is also in the context of Ramadan, uh, before dawn, thousands of Palestinians, uh, tens of thousands actually, had come to the Al-Aqsa Mosque to protect it, just by being there, just by their presence. And they had actually... Because it had been attacked in recent, in the previous days, very violently attacked, they had barricaded doors, they had even collected rocks to use defensively. I mean, we're talking about rocks against heavily armed soldiers. Um, but in any case, what Israel did early Monday morning is a, a preemptive military raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, just attacking people, attacking um, people beating them, beating journalists, beating medics. Hundreds of people were injured, a lot of injuries to the eye with uh, uh, what are called uh, rubber-coated bullets, but they're really steel bullets with a thin coat of plastic on them. And uh, the the goal was to uh, break the the popular resistance in Jerusalem so that the settler march could go through the old city and Israel could show who's boss, but it failed to do that, and Israel was forced into a humiliating retreat where it had to actually cancel the settler march, which was a real humiliation for Israel, and then uh, what happened is that um, Hamas and the other resistance factions in Gaza issued Israel an ultimatum, and they said, you have one hour to withdraw your military forces from the Al-Aqsa Mosque and from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and to release all the prisoners or we will resp- We will retaliate. And of course, Israel didn't do that. And so Hamas and the other groups launched rockets at Israel. Those rockets were a show of force. They were a show of solidarity. They did not kill anyone. Um, Israel then chose to escalate further by launching the bombing campaign in Gaza, which, as we speak, is ongoing. Now, what I want to say about this that's important is I think the miscalculation Israel made is that they thought that they had fragmented the Palestinian people so much, you know, Hamas, uh, and two million Palestinians are caged over there in Gaza. The Palestinians in the West Bank are in little banter stands. The Palestinians in Jerusalem are isolated from the rest of the West Bank. And then the Palestinian citizens of Israel are up in their own cities, and, and they can't do anything. So Israel miscalculated. They did not think that Hamas and the other resistance groups would dare to open a front with Israel over Jerusalem. and. Uh, What in fact happened was what we see now as we speak is that Palestinians throughout historic Palestine are in uh, common resistance to Israel, the settler colonial occupying state. So they're fighting from Gaza, people are resisting in the West Bank, they're resisting in Jerusalem, and for the first time in decades there is a broad uprising among Palestinian citizens of Israel. And what we've also seen is Israel unleashing uh, gangs of settlers. Gangs of settlers have actually been coming in from the West Bank settlements and engaging in what really can only be called pogroms against Palestinian citizens of Israel. And, you know, some of the videos I've seen are horrifying and, and I had this reaction, but I also saw some Israelis and some Jewish commentators making the comparison to Kristallnacht, where you see um, gangs of Jewish extremists smashing Arab-owned businesses, lynching Palestinian citizens of Israel in the street. One lynching was actually broadcast live on Israeli television, where an Israeli mob Pulled a guy out of his car in, in Lod and, uh, in Lidda, they call it Lod in Israel, and, and beat him, uh, almost to death. And, and those gangs have been unleashed all over Israel. So that's the situation we have now. We have one really of open confrontation between the apartheid state, the settler colonial state, the occupation state on the one hand, and the indigenous people on the other hand, really throughout every part of the territory.
0: Now, I said in my introduction, this quote-unquote mowing the lawn is a state policy of Israel's against Gaza. Periodically, Israel finds reasons to do this. Uh, But what's going on? inside Israel is, is different as you're describing it. How much does it have to do with the domestic politics at this moment? Netanyahu is in trouble. Uh, the, there seems to be some stre- rising strength, for, a, in, at least in Israeli terms, a little more of a centrist party. Uh, how much of this is, is being instigated to also, i should add to that there seemed to be the possibility of some actual cooperation between the more centrist and some of the arab parties uh i what is you know this timing seems awfully suspect
1: i don't th- i don't think i agree with with that analysis i'll tell you why um yeah, well, but it, it, it sort of contains a set of premises, which I think are uh, important to discuss and put forward. So, but I, I would, I would challenge them in a, a certain way because, um, it, it, there, there really is no center in Israel. There's no left. I mean, there's like a vestigial left of a couple dozen people, maybe, but there is no center. Uh, you know, when it comes to the mowing the lawn policy, which really means massacring men, women and children in order to teach them a lesson, there is total support across the Israeli political spectrum. The defense minister who is directing these massacres in Gaza now, including the wholesale destruction of high rise apartment buildings, which serves no purpose except to punish the dozens of families who live in them by destroying their homes, is Benny Gantz. Who was the head of the so-called centrist blue and white coalition? Who was supposed to be the alternative to Netanyahu? There is no difference, absolutely none. And uh, so, uh, the the idea that uh, the Arab parties were going to uh, play kingmaker in the outcome of you know whatever umpteenth Israeli election there's been was always a mirage because it became clear very quickly that there was no a uh, coalition of zionist jewish parties that would accept support from arab parties as uh, as the way into government so you know there is not going to be an israeli coalition formed and there there was never going to be one that relied on arab support and that's certainly not going to happen now either and what is happening across the country is really the accumulation of uh decades of uh, oppression and deprivation. The Palestinian citizens of Israel are, relatively speaking, better off than Palestinians in Gaza or the West Bank. But it's relative. Compared to Israeli Jewish citizens, the one and a half million Palestinian citizens of Israel, you could compare their situation to uh, indigenous people in Canada or African Americans. When you look at uh, the bottom line: mortality, uh, poverty, uh, income, discrimination. The the gap between Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel is as vast as the gap between white Canadians and Indigenous uh, people in Canada. So, those pressures build up, uh, and uh, we see the and in a sense, in a perverse way. Of course, I would never. Uh, agree with her repulsive, uh, effectively genocidal ethics. But in a perverse way, Caroline Glick is right. There is no solution, quote unquote solution, in which Palestinians accept permanent subjugation and domination by a an apartheid regime. So they will always resist. So there are two approaches. Really, ultimately, the bottom line is there is the Caroline Glick approach, where every time they rise up, every time they resist, we kill enough of them to, um, you know, quieten them down for a while, which is what she's proposing. Or there's the path of justice, where you actually uh, uh, dismantle a system that is built on uh, discrimination and subjugation and colonization, and replace it with something democratic, something that gives equality to everyone. Uh, You could call that the South African solution. Uh, Of course, Caroline Glick and most Israelis at this point would consider that anathema. They like being in power. They like being the rulers of the land. Um, But Palestinians will never accept it. So they will resist. And what we've seen is, you know, uh, Benny Gantz, uh, did really a horror, terrifying video issued a terrifying video, uh, supposedly a message to the people of Gaza, where he said Gaza will burn. I mean, that video is, uh, I think, direct e- evidence of premeditated war crimes and should be entered directly as evidence to the International Criminal Court, which is undoubtedly investigating Gantz as part of its uh, its investigation into. Uh, war crimes in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, So, uh, he did it before. He said in his video, he said what I did to you. He he said, the last time we met during Eid al-Fitr, I was the chief of staff of the Israeli army, and you saw the destruction we did to Gaza. And he said, the destruction of 2021 will be worse if you don't basically stop resisting us. So, th- what you see is every time Israel conducts one of these massacres, they say, we won, we won a victory. Well, look at the situation now, uh, six years, six, seven years later, Hamas has longer range rockets, more effective missiles. Uh, Israeli analysts are saying that Israel uh, was strategically surprised by the effectiveness of Hamas's um, military capabilities, including the capability to evade the Iron Dome uh, missile defense system, the range that they, that they have rockets that can reach easily reach Tel Aviv. That within the past few days they've had to shut down Ben Gurion Airport twice, and as I speak, they've had to shut down all incoming flights. Uh, uh, all the major U.S. airlines have shut down flights to Tel Aviv. So. Hamas and the other resistance factions are not able to match the destructive power of Israel by any means, which is a nuclear power, armed, of course, with uh, you know four billion dollars a year of weapons from the United States. But they are able to impose a significant cost on Israel that uh, Israel cannot withstand for a long period of time, and uh, so. Th- that's the result. So no matter how much Israel quote unquote mows the lawn by murdering men, women and children, any people in this situation, I don't think Palestinians are special in this regard, any people will use the means they have to resist and to defend their existence and defend their lives on their land.
0: Now, you said that the Arab population within Israel is is rising up in a way they haven't for decades. Uh, why now? And also, is it organized? Is it sustainable?
1: Those are good questions. You know, you can never know exactly what the spark will be that will set something off. But uh, the, the fact is that in recent years, the, the, the most recent major uprising, let's say, was in the year 2000 which coincided with the uh, Second Intifada in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And the Israeli police at that time uh, reacted to Palestinian citizens of Israel exactly the same way they react to Palestinians everywhere else, with live fire. You know, Jews in Israel demonstrate all the time. Settlers demonstrate. They throw stones at police. They call the police Nazis. Uh, They use violence. Uh, and is, the Israeli police never opened fire with live fire on Jewish demonstrators. That's, that's, you know, part of the colonial and apartheid setup. They shot dead Israeli citizens of Israel. In the 20 years since the 2000 uprising, Uh, The gap between Palestinian citizens of Israel hasn't narrowed. The rhetoric of the Israeli political system has become more extreme, more ultra-nationalist, more exclusive. Remember in 2018, Israel passed the so-called nation-state law, which, um, which defines Israel, you know, sort of reaffirms, it's not like this was new, but reaffirms that Israel is a Jewish state where... Only the Jewish people constitute a nation. it uh, removed the official status of the Arabic language uh, and and you know and and uh, endorsed as sort of a national value settlement throughout the land so called land of Israel and that includes by the way not just the West Bank and Jerusalem but also the Galilee, the areas where Palestinian citizens of Israel are concentrated and where israel's land policies have um, made it almost impossible for Palestinian towns and villages and cities to grow, so that you know you have an increasing population. People have nowhere to live. Uh, jobs are um, scarce. There is a growing problem of uh, of violence and disorder. Because which is linked to poverty and lack of opportunity and uh, discrimination, the kinds of things you see in societies around the world where if you subject people to enough deprivation, you know, there's social breakdown. And there have in the last uh, months and year or two been a sustained movement among Palestinian citizens of Israel that is sort of separate from let's say, the, the national question or the Palestinian question, which has simply been asking for public services, for um, you know, public safety that is not uh, you know, repressive, violent policing, uh, resources to address social crises that are endemic among youth in Palestinian citizens of Israel. And the Israeli state, of course, doesn't respond to that. So... You, you have a situation where people feel there's nothing to lose and they feel absolutely no identification with this Israeli Zionist state and they feel for more and more affinity and identification with their Palestinian, uh, brothers and sisters in the West Bank, in Gaza and, uh, everywhere else in the world. So it's, it's kind of a, an entirely predictable development and you have to wonder How the rulers in this situation uh, don't see it coming, or you know, or or aren't capable of perceiving how this actually works against their interests.
0: I mean, it's kind of a sleeping giant: the uh, Palestinian population in Israel.
1: Well, yeah, Uh, especially.
0: What's what's the number again? Yeah,
1: that's what I want to get to. So you know, if you the Israeli policy of control is based on fragmentation. So as long as Israel can keep Palestinians divided geographically and politically. So Israel loves the political division between the West Bank and Gaza. It loves having Palestinian citizens of Israel preoccupied with their own problems and their own issues and their own poverty, which is inflicted on them by the state. Because, you know, it's divide and rule. It's classic divide and rule. Why? Because when you look at the demographics, okay, if we talk about apartheid South Africa, whites were 10% of the population, controlling a 90% black population. It was always clear what that situation was. Israel is 50-50. Israel-Palestine is 50-50. There's about 6 million Jews and 6 million Palestinians, give or take a few hundred thousand. They're basically 50-50, and that's if we're being generous to Israel, because by most credible estimates, the Palestinians are now a narrow majority. There may be 52%. But you're including West Bank and Gaza in those Yes, numbers. yes. All the Palestinians live, it, because Israel r- rules everything. It rules Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. So if you take the entire population under Israeli rule, the majority are Palestinian now. So if that Palestinian majority becomes politically unified, begins to perceive its fate as tied together, as we start to see happening in this current situation, then I think the situation can rapidly become ungovernable for Israel in the way that apartheid became ungovernable for the white regime and it's a situation israel has brought on itself if they wanted to be smart apartheid rulers they would have done everything possible to buy off the palestinian citizens of israel by showering them with funding and infrastructure and good schools and good hospitals and good services so that they would maybe feel like or enough of them would feel like oh we've got something to lose maybe we're going to stay out of this I mean, I don't know that that would work, but I'm saying if you were an, a, an apartheid ruler, that, that's that's what, that's what the rational, quote-unquote, rational way to do it would be. But what Israel has done, uh, and this, I think, is related to the internal politics, is within the Israeli-Zionist-Jewish political system, there are no rewards for that. The rewards are for being more ultra-nationalist, more racist, more anti-Arab, who can brag about killing the most Palestinians? Who can brag about depriving Palestinian citizens of Israel of funding more? And uh, we saw that in the election, you know, in I can't remember if it was the second or first or second or third of the five Israeli elections that there've been in the past two years. But in one of them, Benny Gantz ran a campaign, this, his campaign ads, and these are still online. People could see them was bragging to the Israeli-Jewish public that in 2014, when he was chief of staff, he sent Gaza back to the Stone Ages. That was his campaign pitch to the Israeli public. So, a, And he was supposedly the centrist alternative to Netanyahu.
0: Wasn't Lieberman a few years ago, probably still, and I think it probably reflects a significant body of opinion in the elites, openly talking about carving out sections of what's now Israel and forcing that Arab population into the West Bank. And and maybe that's why they don't want to follow what you're saying is a more rational course. They still dream of more ethnic cleansing within
1: Israel. All the time. You know, Bezalel Smartrich, who is a, uh, a prominent uh, member of parliament, and uh, he said the other day, he tweeted that uh, the army should flatten Gaza. He's published a, a plan for. The transfer of Palestinians, transfer is a polite word for ethnic cleansing or expulsion. That Daniel Blattman, a, a um, prominent Holocaust scholar in Israel, has said is reminiscent of the politics of the Gestapo, which, which, uh, uh, it brings back to your earlier observation, and he's called it potentially genocidal. Moshe Feiglin, a member of the, the Likud party, of Netanyahu's Likud party, in 2014, and he was deputy speaker of the Knesset, he published a plan, and he used these words, to concentrate and exterminate Palestinians in Gaza. Not my words, Moshe Feiglin's words. Uh, so you find, uh, uh, and you know, you can find as many statements as you like uh, from senior politicians in Israel that, that are like that. So again, that really explains the the, the reward system in Israel is uh, that the more extreme, the more ex- racist, the more anti Arab you are, the more violent you are, the more you are rewarded by this radicalized uh, s- uh, settler colonial population. That is in a state of mass psychosis
0: when I was in the West Bank, this must be more than fifteen years ago or so. Uh, a Palestinian activists I, I was talking to, some of which were putting forward that the demand should be that one person one vote that if you're under Israeli control, then you have the right to vote and that and as you say now it's fifty two percent so I, there's no doubt Israel would hate such a proposition. But in terms of international public opinion, it would be a very clear demand. It's like a South African style of demand. Uh, where is that debate at within Palestinians?
1: I think things are moving in that direction. I think that the, the, the so-called two-state solution is a dead letter. I mean, uh, yesterday, uh, Mahmoud Abbas gave a speech from Ramallah in the context of the um, the bombardment of Gaza and the Palestinian resistance, which was just a total irrelevance. You know, it was a total irrelevance. And the responses I saw on social media from Palestinians were just utter contempt for him if they paid any attention. There is no more constituency for the so-called two-state solution and the project of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Things are not necessarily being articulated in 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 the form of oh well we want a one state solution and everyone has equal rights there are people who talk about that i talk about that but people are in a in in a a basic uh anti-colonial struggle they're in a struggle for survival and that's where people's minds are they see israel as uh, a colonial uh state that is bent on their extermination, and they see themselves in a battle for survival. I do believe still that the vast majority of Palestinians have, are and have always been willing to uh, to uh, find an accommodation in which their rights are not compromised. In other words, Palestinians don't see the fulfillment of all their rights as dependent on expelling Israelis. That's that's nonsense, you know, the idea that Palestinians want to throw uh, uh, Jews into the sea was always a racist myth uh, from Israel and its supporters, any more than um, indigenous people in Canada are calling for all European Canadians to leave the country, or black South Africans are calling for all whites to leave the country. They're not, they haven't called for that. But what but they do struggle and continue to struggle for the fulfillment of all their rights, the recognition of the wrongs that have been done to them, and full restitution for those wrongs and That's absolutely something that I think would be um uh, where Palestinians would go if if we can get to the point of that discussion that ca- discussion really will only happen when the balance of power shifts, and what what will shift it well. Uh, Certainly, an increased military deterrent to Israel's crimes and aggression will help, but also international solidarity in the form of boycott, divestment, and sanctions that begins to isolate Israel and impose a cost. And I do think that that is starting to shift more and more. With each Israeli spasm of violence in Gaza, you see a decisive shift in international opinion. Um, And the holdouts in the so-called international community are the North Americans and the Europeans and the other settler colonies. So it's Canada, the United States, the Europeans, Australia. You know, those are the hardline pro-Israel supporters. And then we're even, we're only talking really about the elites because at the popular level, even in North America and Europe, you see a dramatic shift in opinion towards support for justice for Palestinians. So, and you
0: should include the majority of ordinary Jews. Poll out of, after poll shows that
1: Absolutely, and particularly the younger generation. You know, the crisis, so-called crisis, that major Zionist groups in North America and Europe see is that the younger generation of Jews who are really uh, much more inclined to universal values and to justice uh, uh, do not... You, uh, they either are indifferent to israel or becoming increasingly hostile to it and and rejecting it as any part of their identity and uh really lining up in solidarity with palestinians and that i think is an irreversible phenomenon there is not going to be a new generation of um you know younger american or canadian jews or really americans younger americans or canadians of any background who say yeah we're going to sign up for settler colonialism and massacring indigenous people? Because yeah, you know, you you look at someone like Justin Trudeau, who is such a smooth talker when it comes to indigenous rights in Canada, and and you know he's all apologies and all oh, we have to recognize our history. Now the reality may be different in terms of Canadian government policy, but he talks the talk, right? Well, when it comes to Israel, he's like, I don't know, maybe a Canadian prime minister from the 1940s or 50s talking about indigenous people in Canada. It's 100% support, 100% contempt for Palestinians. But I think ordinary Canadians who begin to understand and accept that Canada is a settler colonial state can then use that framework to understand what's happening in Palestine, and and there's no going back, there's no uh, you know uh, putting Humpty Dumpty together again, so to speak. So I think that really is an irreversible uh, trend.
0: All right, thanks very much for joining us, Ellie.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: And I hope we do this again soon. This is just the beginning of the conversation. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button. Don't forget to go to Electronic Intifada and check out all the reporting there. And uh, thanks for joining us.